Hey there, before we get started, just want to let you know today's Real Vision Daily Briefing is in partnership with the Gold Investment Letter, helping sophisticated investors successfully navigate capital markets and maximize profits in gold, silver, and mining stocks. GIL discovers the most undervalued companies and isolates special situations in the mining sector for their members. Breaking down unique topics such as investor psychology, portfolio management, and macroeconomic trends with a goal of drastically improving investment returns. Sign up for this free e-letter for immediate action. Goldinvestmentletter.com Hi, everyone. This week, OPEC Plus surprised the world by cutting production for a deep dive on what this means for the economy and geopolitics. I'm joined by Harris Kupperman, founder of Praetorian Capital Management. Hi, Kapi. How are you? I'm doing well, thanks. How are you? I'm doing okay. So we know that you're you're paying attention to the oil uh, patch. We wanted to catch up with you, and we had a, a quick email exchange um, because you're paying close attention to this. And it really did OPEC Plus's decision to cut the supply um, really did seem to catch the market off guard. Clearly, everyone's been worried about banking and a banking crisis. But but what what's your take on this? What do you think was behind that? Well, I think uh, OPEC Plus looked at the SPR draining and they kind of realized that this was their moment to exert pressure. I mean, without an SPR to play defense, uh, you know, they can you know, move the price however they want and they're in the business of maximizing price. So they're going to move the price higher. And uh, we're at a moment in time with not a lot of uh, incremental supply that can come online. Um, and yeah, they're going to move the price higher, especially because demand is really, really strong. Uh, I, I think also OPEC is really looking at what uh, uh, the Federal Reserve is doing with raising interest rates. And, you know, when the Federal Reserve raises interest rates, one of the key components of inflation is energy. And the Federal Reserve is basically saying we want the energy price to go down because we want to destroy demand. Um, and OPEC is saying, hey, wait a second, like we need demand. And so if the Federal Reserve is going around the world uh, destroying demand, and when I say destroying demand, it's not really in America because American you know, oil consumption doesn't really change that much. You know, with, with the economic cycle, it, it's really uh, emerging markets where uh, they don't have the same amount of purchasing power and often their currencies uh, depreciate, which makes it harder to buy oil. But if the Federal Reserve is going around the world and basically trying to create economic crises in all these emerging markets, well, then that's going to destroy uh, energy demand. And OPEC's just saying, hey, if you try to play this game, destroy energy demand, we're just going to destroy supply. We're going to end up in the same spot. And it's a race to the bottom. And, you know, no one wants a race to the bottom. In the end, and I don't think uh, J-PAL's realized this yet, you know, OPEC's the one driving the bus here, and they're kind of, and J-PAL's kind of in the back seat, and he thinks he's driving it, but he's just kind of a passenger. In, in the end, the price of oil drives uh, inflation, and OPEC drives oil. Yeah, and we saw that was such a problem before. So a couple things here. OPEC traditionally likes to keep it somewhere in the middle, though, because if there is, if there is too much upward pressure on oil prices, as you just mentioned, that will kill demand. So are they just trying to keep it in a range here? Or because we have people talking about $100 barrel of oil again. I mean, right now we saw that pop after the news and it's kind of sitting right around $79, $80 for light sweet crude. Do you think that they they just want to stabilize it or are they trying to put upward pressure on prices here? Well, I mean, I think they want it in a range. Obviously, a too high price destroys demand, and no, no one wants that. Uh, but I think, you know, the, the world can deal with a price in, that's triple digits. I mean, 
you go back to like, you know, 2012 to 2014, oil was pretty consistently around $100. Adjust that for inflation, you'd be around 150 today. And, you know, the world functioned just fine. I just don't see why we can't have a price in the 100 to 150 range, as opposed to, you know, this range we've kind of grown used to, which is kind of this 50 to 75 range over the last uh, six years. I think OPEC plans to guide it there. You know, I don't think OPEC wants it to be spiky, but OPEC wants it to, you know, over time, go back into that other range. And, you know, I think they're going to get it there. So, you know, there, there's been a lot made of the fact that this is uncomfortable for U.S., for Europe, who are trying to fight inflation. They're trying to do that. They're trying to manage the economy through. Is this a, is this a sign of a larger political rift? Well, I think so. I mean, I think the, the the Middle East, which has always been a place where we just arbitrarily bombed countries, uh, you know, it's kind of unfortunate, actually. Uh, I think a lot of the Middle East countries have kind of gotten together. I mean, you see Iran and Saudi, are, I don't want to say friends, but they're, they're talking again. I think they've realized that, uh, you know, they don't sell much oil to uh, the U.S. anymore. They're, they're selling their oil to India and uh, Africa and China. And I think they're going to, you know, move out of that our orbit into their orbit and it's kind of unfortunate for america but uh i think that's the the direction things are going and that rift means that they're they're, they're not as focused on what happens here and in europe they're they're more focused on their new customers um and uh, yeah i think uh that they're just gonna do what's best for the middle east yeah those those new customers so what are the implications of that do you think I don't know. It's probably not good for the U.S. <laughs> yeah. What do you think it means for oil prices, though? Because the new customers don't want high oil prices either, right? Anybody who's importing oil wants to keep oil, you know, low, as low as they can. Well, I think what's going to happen is uh, these uh, new customers are going to pay in their traditional currencies, the, the national currencies. They're not going to pay in dollars anymore. And so the net result is you're going to see some of these currencies appreciate because they can purchase oil in their own currency. They don't need dollars. And that, that's always been, you know, what, what made uh, the U.S. strong is that you know, the world needed our dollars to buy energy and all this other stuff. But if uh, they're willing to take rupees, then and they're willing to take rupees at you know, a discounted price, you know, uh, Russia is right now. Well, then the rupee is probably going to appreciate against the dollar and India is going to have more purchasing power. And then it's not going to feel so expensive to pay $100 or 125 oil because you can do it in rupees that you can print. Uh, you know, it's, it's going to disintermediate the dollar. And like I said, it's probably not good for America, but it's probably very good for, you know, oil prices priced in dollars. So do you think that the, the market is, we, you know, we saw that big decline in oil. Everyone's anticipating that we're going into a recession. Um, that's going to hurt demand. Do you think the, that, that the market is mispricing the oil narrative here? Yeah, I mean, there is no recession coming. Uh, I just don't see it. Uh, we, we talk to companies all day long. Things kind of got slow in Q4. I'd say the worst of it was November or December. And every month incrementally, it's accelerating. You have to understand there's two economies in America. You have the economy that's driven by interest rates. That's commercial real estate, private equity, hedge funds, VC. Like that, that economy is suffering. It's, it's slowing down. Um, then you have the whole rest of the economy, which is capital goods, it's services, it's everything else. That, that we consume, a lot of it happens in flyover country as opposed to you know, coastal cities, and that's booming out of control. And I, I think people focus on the overall GDP numbers and you know, they're, they're missing the fact that large parts of the country are really doing well. And you know, those are the parts of the country that drive a lot. And you know, I think the demand for oil is to stay very high. You, the, the numbers just came out today. Uh, 
there's huge draws. I think we're going to see huge draws of, of oil in the U.S. every week going forward now until, you know, it hits zero or they, they start drilling for more oil. And, you know, the only time that they start drilling for more oil is at a much higher price. And then, you know, there's a lag. No, I, I think uh, the demand is very strong. And I think the world's gotten way too focused on what the U.S. is doing because we used to be such a big piece of the, 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 the oil puzzle. And then, you know, Europe was the second biggest piece. But the incremental demand, it's not here. I mean, Europe and the U.S. have almost flatlined for a decade now. It's, it's, it's really India where, you know, look, they sold 50% more motorbikes this year than last year. I mean, those motorbikes are, you know, future demand for oil. Look at what's happening in China. Look at Africa. Look at, you know, Southeast Asia. It's all, you know, growing very, very rapidly in terms of oil demand. And people forget that there's 6 billion people on this earth that want the same standard of living that I have. And I'm sitting here with air conditioning, I got all my lights on, you know, I got a microwave and I just drove to work. Like most of these people don't have any of these things yet, but I believe in human progress. And I think in 20 years, they're gonna have most of the same toys that I have. And as a result, they're gonna need a lot more energy. And obviously, you know, petroleum products are, you know, a dramatic, a you know, substantial piece of that future energy consumption. Can Middle East producers meet that kind of demand? No, they can't. Um, if you look at what's happening in the Middle East, a couple of the countries have some spare capacity. Obviously, these recent cuts uh, add that spare capacity. But we're talking about one year worth of global growth. I mean, they, then you know they're, they're full. Look at Saudi, which has always been you know the the big player in OPEC. I mean, the fact that they're aggressively going offshore right now, the, the fact that offshore is far more you know, technologically complex, it's far more expensive, uh, it's longer cycle. The fact that they're aggressively uh, bringing rigs on, uh, into, the, uh, into the Arabian Gulf, I think it just shows that their onshore production is, is in decline now. And it's you know, rapidly in decline. And they, they have better data than I have, obviously. But they, they wouldn't be going after this much more expensive oil if they had onshore stuff that they could ramp up. And I, I, I mean, I think the Middle East, you know, all of OPEC probably has you know, 2 million barrels of spare capacity, maybe three at most, but global demand is probably going to grow three a year. So, you know, maybe you can postpone the problem a year, but you can't postpone it indefinitely. And, you know, oil has to come from somewhere. And there's been a seven-year period with really minimal exploration expenditure. And unlike U.S. shale, where you kind of flip a switch and six months later you have oil, the vast majority of the world's oil comes from a long cycle that takes five or ten years of planning and spending. And they cannot be able to turn it on fast enough. I think you're going to have an energy crisis. Just a reminder, the Real Vision Daily Briefing is in partnership with the Gold Investment Letter, helping sophisticated investors successfully navigate capital markets and maximize profits in gold, silver, and mining stocks. GIL discovers the most undervalued companies and isolates special situations in the mining sector for their members, breaking down unique topics such as investor psychology, portfolio management, and macroeconomic trends with a goal of drastically improving investment returns. Sign up for this free e-letter for immediate action. Goldinvestmentletter.com. So, wow, that's, so do you, first of all, let's, let's dig into that energy crisis a little bit. Do you, for, what happens to the price sort of give me your price target. If you think there's an energy crisis and there's not enough capacity to meet the demand for an economy that's presumably, in your view, stronger than people expect it is outside of the interest rate sensitive area, 
what what are we talking about for a barrel of oil then? I mean, is $100 seem conservative against that? Or do we have a sort of, is this a longer term thesis? So in the next year or so, we'll stay range bound. I mean, it's really hard to predict these things. I, I do believe that, you know, the price of oil has to go to a level that incentivizes new uh, production. Because, uh, you know, the the demand doesn't ever get destroyed by the price of oil. It has to, oil has to go much higher. It's not 100. It's, you know, two, 300. And so, no, I, I think you're going to see a new range for oil in the 1 to 200 range. And I think there's going to be some spikes because, as we've learned, uh, oil is very geopolitical. And there's moments in time where oil comes offline and people get scared and the, the price you know, goes out of control. And, you know, oil has uh, massive amounts of derivatives tied to it. And a lot of those derivatives are counterparty with banks that are in trouble. I think you're going to see, you know, at least one or two, you know, super spikes along the way. And super spike can take you to a crazy number over a short period of time, uh, just, just because, you know, you have some sort of, you know, derivative blow up or squeeze, whatever you want to call it. But no, I think you're going to see a much higher level to the price of oil. And I, just going back a second, the price of oil declined from last summer really until a few weeks ago. And I think people looked at it and said, this looks like recession. I think people missed the fact that, you know, you had China offline, let's call it, I don't know, 200 days at 3 million barrels a day. That's, you know, 600 million barrels. You had Russia dump uh, all of their uh, refined and unrefined product, call it another 150 million barrels. You had a rather warm uh, winter in the U.S. and uh, the, in, in Europe, as another 100 million barrels. So they were already posting 850 million barrels. And then you had the U.S. SPR dump another 250, let's call it, you're at a billion one. You start going around the world and you say, wow, that's a lot of oil that just got dumped on the market in a six to nine month period of time. And, you know, global inventories barely even uh, rose. I mean, that oil got consumed uh, mm -hmm. and it impacted the price, obviously. And, you know, at the very end, a couple of hedge funds had margin calls because they did crazy things with interest rates. But... No, you, you had a lot of oil get dumped on the market and mostly got consumed. And that oil, you know, the weather you can't predict, but a lot of that oil isn't coming back. I mean, the SPR, they have a bit more to sell, but they don't have that not much more. So you see, I don't think it was that the economy was weak. I mean, the oil got consumed. It, it was just mm -hmm. that you had these random things that happened simultaneously that, that pressured the price. And I think it gave people a very false sense of confidence. Meanwhile, on, on the production side, I think a lot of uh, oil companies looked at what was happening with the price of oil, and when they were setting their 2023 budgets, they said, hey, let's pull back a bit. And so you just end up with another year with less spending. Meanwhile, you have massive inflation uh, in, in oil field services. I mean, you know, my mom, she complains about the price of broccoli and you know, cucumbers and stuff, but if, if you're doing you know, oil field services, you're getting 20 30% annual inflation. I mean, that, that's way worse than broccoli. And so, you know, your, 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 your costs to get this oil out of the ground is accelerating and it's accelerating rapidly. And, you know, these guys used to say they were breaking even at 50, but they, they couldn't have been because they all went bankrupt when oil was 70. Yeah. But, you know, if, if they were kind of breaking even at 70, they're probably not breaking even at 100 now. I mean, that, that, that's the thing about uh, commodities. And, you know, it's just supply and demand. And you look at what the cost curves look like. And, Sure, there's some great places in the Permian that might still be at 50, but the vast majority of the world's oil needs a higher price. You you, so you just brought up a great point on that shale, that break-even. That's what a lot of people talk about, right? They look at at what point can you bring U.S. production back online? So for you, you think it's much higher than we are now? 
Yeah, it's absolutely much higher. I mean, one, you're running out of tier one locations, so your EOR is going to be lower in the future. And then two, you have massive uh, inflation of oil food services. Um, no, I think the price is going to be much higher. Um, and, you know, the, the world's not running out of oil. Don't get the wrong idea. The world's going to have a period of time, two, three year period, where, you know, there's a gap where you're not going to have the three million barrels a, a day of incremental supply that meets the three million barrels of incremental demand. And, you know, I think the second half of this year is going to be the first time where we really get to see what happens. Uh, you know, we're getting pretty large draws. Look at today's draw. I mean, before OPEC did something, the global inventory was drawing two to three million barrels a day. Now we're drawing three to five million a day. And you, know, you can't draw at a couple percent of global uh, production daily without there being a crisis. It, the crisis gets solved with much higher prices that destroy demand and incentivize people to do stuff. But you can incentivize people all day. It still takes them a couple of years to do stuff. Yeah. So when we were, when, when we were, Facing the higher oil prices, uh, there was a feeling that there was no way the U.S. could afford, especially when we're going we're to be facing an election year, to let oil run up that much. Um, so they tapped the SPR. That's what they did. Now that the SPR is drained, do you see a situation where in order to cap oil prices, they put an export ban on? I mean, they'll try all sorts of stupid things. I mean, governments historically do really dumb things that make problems worse. That's the history of governments. Uh, I assume they'll try all sorts of things that'll fail. And all that it will do will be to uh, destroy the supply response because if the government's interfering in your ability to do your business, you're gonna you know, sit on the beach and you know, enjoy your profits. So you, and, won't see the, you won't see the sort of production necessary in order to meet demand if there's some sort of export ban or some sort of price control? Yeah, they're probably going to try excess profits taxes. They're probably going to try export bans and price caps and all sorts of other things. And the net result is that guys will take their dividends and go to the beach. They're not going to drill for oil. Um, no, I think the, it's almost inevitable that the government will take a problem and turn it into a crisis. And when we're looking at uh, China, Africa, do do you anticipate that demand remaining strong? A lot of people are concerned, look at China and say, okay, they reopened, but their economy is a mess behind the scenes. We don't really know what's going on. They have a huge property bubble problem. The, the level of growth they're going for anymore is more moderate than they would have in the past. Does that change the demand equation for you at all? Or do you think that you're just going to see enormous demand coming from that country? I think you're going to see enormous demand that's going to stay or keep growing. I mean, look at per capita energy consumption in China. Uh, I mean, compare it to the U.S. And no, they're going to keep needing more oil. And yes, you know, there's probably going to be a bunch of bankruptcies in the property sector that already have been. You'll see a bunch of regional Chinese banks that disappear. And, you know, that's just the, the, the nature. I mean, we, we've gone through that in the U.S. I mean, look at energy consumption per capita over 100 years in the U.S., We've gone through, you know, world wars and Great Depression and economic crises. Energy demand just keeps growing. It's, it's unstoppable. So if we're at a higher range for oil, do you think that encourages other forms of energy, uh, nuclear, all the things we heard about being talked about when, especially right when Europe was facing the 
the crisis with the cutoff of of Russia, or is that not just just long term and not quick enough and not with enough political momentum behind it to make a difference? Well, I think nuclear is the obvious solution. If you know you came to me and said we have this new technology that you know produces clean energy at super low cost, that's amazingly reliable and stable, I'd say let's go do it and do it at massive scale. Uh, unfortunately, nuclear has you know seventy years of uh, baggage and you know there's been a couple accidents along the way and i think you know humans get smarter and better you know they learn from accidents i hope but um no i think nuclear is a large part of the solution we own a lot of uh, uranium through an entity called sprott physical uranium trust because i think the demand for uh, nuclear power is going to grow and this is a deficit uh, on the production side uh, but, but the problem is that a, a nuclear power plant takes five or ten years to build and that's not a short enough solution i mean Step one is to stop retiring a bunch of these power plants that Europe, for whatever reason, still wants to retire. Uh, but you know, I think that on, on the margin, that's very bullish for uh, uranium demand. If you can save some of these power plants and maybe even turn some of the ones on that are mothballed, but that's really around uh, the, the margins in terms of total global energy production. But it, sure, it would help, absolutely. Mm. So how are you trading this energy crisis or what are the trading implications of the energy crisis that you see? Is it is it the straight commodities? How are you looking at this? Well, the way I'm looking at this is that to solve the energy crisis, you're going to need incrementally a couple hundred billion dollars a year of you know incremental demand above the current baseline uh, of uh, energy exploration, spending, drilling. And so we own a couple companies in that uh, supply chain of companies that are helping to explore for oil. Uh, my, my particular focus right now is uh, offshore. Uh, I own two companies. One's Valeris, the largest owner of offshore drilling rigs. Uh, Tidewater, which is one of the largest owners of uh, offshore supply vehicle vessels. I mean, I think a lot of the incremental uh, supply of oil is going to come from offshore just because, like I said, uh, onshore U.S. is kind of can't really grow much more. Uh, and a lot of the big discoveries are in countries where you know, they're very open to oil exploration and you're going to go where the discoveries are. So Guyana, Suriname, Namibia, maybe all of West Africa. I mean, I think that's, you know, Brazil. I think that's where a lot of the growth is going to come from. And so I want to be investing where the growth is going to be. So we own a lot of this equipment. We own downhole supplies. We own throughout the supply chain. We, we also own a, a company, it's a small little company in Canada that's uh, rolling up uh, older oil assets that are low decline called Journey Energy. And then finally, we just own a bunch of physical. We, we own the Brent Oil ETF, um, tickers BNO, just because we have some roll yield. We own a lot of uh, call options on oil going out to 2025. Thanks for joining us today. Just a reminder, the Real Vision Daily Briefing is in partnership with the Gold Investment Letter, helping sophisticated investors successfully navigate capital markets and maximize profits in gold, silver, and mining stocks. GIL discovers the most undervalued companies and isolates special situations in the mining sector for their members, breaking down unique topics such as investor psychology, portfolio management, and macroeconomic trends with a goal of drastically improving investment returns. Sign up for this free e-letter for immediate action. Goldinvestmentletter.com. And what's the... What's the downside? We just we we sort of talked before. You don't hear a lot of people talking about an energy crisis. You hear them talking about a banking crisis. You hear them talking about a hard landing. 
you hear them talking about, you know, a knock on demand destruction off the back of that. So it sounds like if the markets doesn't have their head wrapped around this, where's the pain trade? You know, what suffers as a result of this? Well, I think consumers are going to suffer. I mean, we can have a banking crisis and an energy crisis simultaneously. There's nothing that says you can't. I mean, in the 1970s, we did both. I kind of think we're going to do both. Um, you know, I think the pain trade is anything tied to uh, interest rates. Uh, I, I think that, uh, you know, at some point in the not so distant future, uh, Powell is going to have to make a choice between saving the banks and, you know, chasing oil across the screen. And I, I think he's going to decide to save the banks uh, just because that's probably the more politically expedient thing to do. And he's going to let inflation run really hot. And, you know, I think the, the net result of that is the 10-year probably falls apart and then all the banks fail. Because, you know, if the 10-year goes to some high single-digit number, I mean, I don't think you have any banking sector. It's not just the little, you know, kind of fragile ones. I think you're going to have like a, a banking crisis with an energy crisis. I, I mean, I think it's going to look a lot like the 70s. Cubby, like, that's a that's a horrifying out, outlook that we're facing. Uh, a not, banking not if you crisis, own energy. Not, not if you're prepared. But a banking crisis and an energy crisis, I mean, that would be a massive hit to the global economy, no? Not, not sure. I mean, I think you're going to see a wealth transfer, not a hit to the global economy. I think people forget these things go in cycles. Um, you know, in, in the late 1970s, uh, New York City was bankrupt and uh, Houston and Dallas was where all the wealth in America was. And then it took 40 years and the pendulum swung the other direction. And then I think the pendulum's probably going to swing back the other direction. And maybe it doesn't just go to Houston and Dallas this time, but I mean, Kuwait was booming last cycle. I mean, why can't Dubai boom this cycle? That's effectively the banking hub of uh, the Middle East. I, I, th I just think you're going to see wealth uh, move around the globe and transition. I don't. I mean, it's going to be pretty terrible if you own Manhattan real estate, but I don't own Manhattan real estate. That's not my problem. <laughs> uh, I, I, I like. To, I know. And and every time we talk, you have a very global view of these things, which I think is helpful I mean, because a lot of analysts come from a very financial center. You know, London, Hong Kong. New York. Um, so that I think does tend to color it. What about emerging markets? How do they fare in this? Because when I hear banking crisis, I understand what you're saying about wealth transfer. But when I hear banking crisis, energy crisis simultaneously, you know, traditionally emerging markets haven't done well. But again, is this maybe a new period where that's not the case? I mean, it's, I think emerging markets, everyone just puts it in a bucket and then puts it into an ETF. And that's the wrong way to look at it. Every country has its own dynamics, its own uh, political situation, its own, uh, you know, benefits and, you know, costs and benefits. Like, I think you have to look at it on a country by country basis. It's, it's a very Wall Street finance world view, emerging markets, you know, let's, let's go buy that ETF, frontier markets, let's go buy that ETF. Well, I mean, you're talking about 200 countries, like, you have to pick through them. And, I, I, I'm not an expert on all these countries. I don't think anyone could ever be an expert on all of them. But um, no, I think some will do very well and some will do very poorly. I, just going back to the 1970s scenario, I think it's really important to remember that, you know, we all look back on the 1970s and, you know, we think of like bell bottoms and, you know, gas lines, but that, that, that wasn't the whole 1970s. There were periods where the economy did very well. There were periods where the economy did very badly. Uh, it, 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 you know, interest rates, you know, moved up and down, uh, inflation, oil prices, they all, there was just a lot of volatility. I think, you know, the, 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 the 2000 to 2019 before COVID, 
I mean, yeah, we had uh, the GFC kind of in the middle of it, but it was a very linear progression with like two bad years. And, you know, I, I think what the 1970s showed with a lot of volatility is probably more likely to be what the next decade looks like, which is, you know, good for a hedge fund like ours that, you know, craves volatility. Uh, I think it's gonna be difficult for people that are, are used to a very uh, linear world. Yeah. What about individual investors in that in that kind of scenario who don't maybe have the tools you have to invest in these types of places? Is it going to be, are we just going to see, you know, either a painful sideways grind or equities, which is what most people are in, just have a really tough time? And bonds, maybe. Well, I mean, I think bonds are just going to be vaporized. I mean, if you own bonds, you're going to lose most of your toys. Uh, but no, I think in equities, it's going to come down to uh, stock selection. It's going to come down to owning things that are going to not just be, you know, immune to inflation, but, you know, pro-cyclically uh, positive to what's happening in, with inflation. Uh, but for individual investors, I think you buy good companies with strong tailwinds and you go to the beach, you know, yeah. and more so than ever before, you just ignore the volatility and you use uh, the volatility to your advantage to buy more when uh, you have these you know, occasional crazy moments where things drop. It, 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 we get this comment often, and I've been talking to a lot of people. We've been going back and forth about the future. And you have this point of view, and you know that there are some people who have this idea that we are still in this disinflationary, we are going to once again be in a disinflationary period. The Fed has to, central banks have to bring rates down, back right back down. They probably have to do QE because they can't have interest rates be high just based on the amount of debt. Like, what do you say to people who have a different view than you when you talk about this return to the 70s, volatile inflation, high commodity period? Where do you where do you differ? Like, why why is there such two distinct worldviews? Well, I think people got lulled into this idea that uh, deflation is systemic, and that we can't uh, defeat inflation. What we just learned the last uh, three years is that if the governments give everyone stimmies, there is no deflation. You have an inflation problem. Uh, if if the government you know gives zero percent interest rates to banks, well, the banks just kind of sit on the money and nothing happens. So we can solve deflation at any moment. You just give everyone stimmies. And stimmies are popular. And politicians do popular things. And if times get tough, there'll be more stimmies. And as a result, I just don't think you're going to have uh, deflation. I just don't see it. Um, and I, I don't know. Uh, I, I think there's, a, there's been this change of mindset amongst uh, voters and citizens where People look at this and they say, we kind of like stimmies better. You know, no one wants hard times. Like, stimmies are fun. And I, I just think you have this total change of mindset. Um, and so, no, I just don't think it's, it's, it's possible uh, that you could have deflation. And if you do have deflation, for any short period of time, it's met with stimmies. I mean, go, go back to the 1970s. I mean, there were periods where the economy was really terrible. And then, you know, on the fiscal side, they spent a ton of money. And then, you know, the economy kind of boomed and inflation took over. It's kind of this yo-yo. And I mean, you look back to any inflationary period, I mean, I like to talk about Weimar just because it's like the most well-documented inflation, even though it's a hundred years ago, there were periods where, you know, the stock market dropped 50, 70% and um, you had the currency actually, you know, appreciate against gold and speculators who were over levered got margin called. I mean, you look at a chart of Weimar today and it's just a straight line. You have to use a log scale to look at it. 
But, you know, if you were living and breathing it, there, there were terrifying shakeouts along the way where the government tried to uh, arrest the inflation and, you know, they never quite got to deflation. But I, I think the cycle will look like that, hopefully not with the same amplitude of Weimar. But I, I think there'll be moments of time where, yeah, you know, the deflationists will have their day. They'll have their three to six months. And then it'll all start up again because the structural reasons for the inflation haven't been fixed. Um, and the economy is still growing. I think you. I think that is a really important point when you're trying to figure this out. Is that it's that it's the structural reasons that you have to keep an eye on because that's going to be where the trend is. Even though you're going to have moments, as you say, where you're you're going to see swings in everything, but if those structural reasons are there, let last question I wanted to ask you is um, the ESG push. Is that dead if we're in a in it in an energy crisis where we're looking at a much higher range for oil and and a long runway to get some of these other pro or or can these things coexist at the same time as people search for alternatives? Well, I mean, I think we're nearing peak ESG, uh, which is probably a good thing, honestly. Um, but no, I think you're going to have your adherence to ESG, and it's like you know, religions kind of come, they peak, they die out. I mean. This is, you know, no one practices Roman religions anymore. I mean, I can name like three of the gods and I'm a Roman history major. You know, these things, that they peak, they crest. And, you know, th this little uh, religion of ESG, it's been around for a while. It peaked and, you know, there'll be some diehard adherents. But I think the vast majority of uh, investors want to make money. And it's great if they're doing something that has a social good, but most of them just want to save for their retirement. And when, you know, the, the, the two had an overlap and a bunch of these green stocks were going up because we had a speculative bubble. Everyone said, this is great. I'm, I'm, I'm checking both boxes. But now they lost a ton of money on these green stocks. I think they just want to save for their retirement. Uh, yeah. no, I, I think you're going to see um, a shift and it's probably good because ESG is just a tax on humanity. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm successful. I, I can afford that tax if I have to. But, you know, you look around the emerging worlds and, you know, it's a real uh, detriment to 6 billion people that want a better standard of living if they can't afford the things to pull them up out of, you know, poverty effectively. We have a, we have a couple of quick questions. We have questions. We only have a couple minutes uh, to get through them. But I do want to ask, um, we have a question. Are you trading nat gas in any way or pipelines? No, no positions in nat gas or pipelines. I, I wrote some puts on nat gas a couple months ago. and. Made a little money, caught a bounce, but no, I, I, uh, I don't know enough about nat gas. I mean, I look at weather models and they make no sense to me. It's, uh, it's a byproduct to energy, uh, to, to liquids production. I feel more strongly about liquids, and of course, I'd rather nat gas prices be high because it's good for liquids producers. But I just don't have a, I don't know a view. And are you short term or long term on your views? Uh, pretty long term. I mean, I think people have this crazy idea they show up in the morning and say, you know, what did OPEC just do? Like, of course, we're talking about OPEC because it's fascinating. But, you know, OPEC has, you know, raised and cut. They, they, they do all sorts of things. This is all short term. I mean, longer term, we're going to have an energy crisis and they can forestall it a bit. But the only way you're going to avert an energy crisis is to incrementally spend a few trillion dollars, a few hundred billion a year, every year for five years. And no, we're going to have an energy crisis. And so, it, it gives me the, the the peace of mind and the the fortitude to stay through a shakeout where look oil dropped from 130 to 65. Uh, you know, fortunately, I don't own much front month oil, so I kind of ignored it. My 
services companies went up the whole time. You know, <laughs> I bought the right part of the oil uh, market, but you know, it, it gives me the, the fortitude to kind of just ride through this volatility where a lot of people are questioning your thesis, and you could just say, "I don't care." I mean, that that's just front month oil. Yeah, which is which is a, a really good point to make. Um, and you, for anyone who missed it before, when you just said I didn't have any of those contracts, but you do. You are in Brent as the commodity as well as the exploration, right? And producers. Sure, we own uh, the Brent Oil ETF because I want to earn that roll yield. Uh, we own quite a lot of uh, WTI twenty twenty three and twenty twenty five uh, call options. I mean, notionally, that's you know one of the biggest positions in my book. I actually think it is my biggest position. Uh, but you know, they're call options. Some of them are out of the money. Some of them are in the money today. Um, and then we own uh, service companies, Valeris and Tidewater, and we own one producer, Journey Energy. We own some other, you know, bits and pieces, but those, those are the main, uh, you know, components. A question about, are you looking at EVs at all? I mean, you're focused on an energy crisis. Um, someone's asking about the realistic pace of EV penetration relative to net zero prices. Are you looking at that as a byproduct of, of if people are facing uh, potentially big spikes in oil or no? No, I think EV is gonna be something you're gonna go to a museum with my kids and be like, wow, you know, that was an evolutionary dead end and we all wasted trillions of dollars on this. No, I think, I think there's no future to EV. Really, why? Because it, it destroys energy. I mean, you have this concept called EROI, which is, the return on energy you put in. I mean, in EV, uh, you put more energy in than you get out. And so as a result, it's just like a thermodynamic rule. It, it won't work unless you subsidize it. I mean, people, I mean, what's the reason for EVs? It's because supposedly it produces less carbon, but through the full life cycle of owning an EV, because so much carbon has to go into the stupid thing, uh, it doesn't use less carbon. It's actually, you're better off having a gas guzzler. Uh, if, if carbon's the thing you're caring about, you're caring about the, the total cost of using the, the, the car or the, the energy in versus energy out. Almost any component you look at, uh, you're, you're better off just having uh, you know, an, an internal combustion engine. And those engines have actually gotten very efficient over the last couple of uh, years. And no, I, I think that's the future. I mean, if you kind of want to be a snob and say you got an EV, then be a snob. I mean, it's a nice thing to have if you want to show off that you have a thing. You know, for me, I have a truck. I, doesn't bother me at all, and I'm proud of my truck. <laughs> but, but I mean, th this is just like a, you know, a consumer choice issue. In the end, you know, how do you want to get from point A to B? What sort of engine do you want? I think it's a consumer choice thing. But in the end, most consumers will be price sensitive unless there's massive subsidies, which there are. And even with the massive subsidies, most consumers still want the ICE vehicle. And so, you know, I, I, I tend to think you're going to see more ICE vehicles. And as uh, more of these EVs age and people realize what happens to battery degradation with lithium ion batteries and the fact that the lithium ion battery is such a large component of the total cost of a car. And when you at year five or six have to replace 30, 40% of your car's initial cost, people are gonna realize that the lifetime cost of owning an EV is astronomically high. And, and as a result, I think, you know, adoption will decline. I mean, the, the main, in the U.S. at least, and, and, and other countries, I mean, the big push on EVs only happened two or three years ago. So we're kind of two to three years away from learning that it's a terrible uh, vehicle. That's, it's so, gonna, that's, uh, gonna, that's gonna hurt the ears of many a Tesla shareholder, I'm sure. Yeah, they've done so well in the markets, let them be. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you, mentioned, you mentioned something before about 
the bot the rates going higher on us on the us um because we're in this inflationary so you see us rates regardless of what the feds fed does us you see treasury rates going higher well i don't think it's the fed's decision really um you know in the end, the Fed's going to have a choice. And look, short term, they can control rates. They can do their operation twists and they can, you know, play around with the yield curve and they probably will. But, you know, they're going to have this choice. They have to save the banking system or chase oil across the screen. And I think they're going to save the banking system, which means they're going to probably halt, you know, they're probably going to do another 25 or maybe another 50 from here and then they're going to halt. And you're still going to have the banking system kind of, uh, on its knees. And but the problem is that if you're halting and inflation is accelerating, and I think in the back half of the year, this year, it's gonna accelerate. I mean, look, we're, we're seeing the CPI, it's, it's, it's month over month is, you know, flattish, I guess, and everyone's declaring victory. But think of it, we're going up against uh, 130 oil right now. We're going up against, you know, peak uh, you know, inflation things from the, the Russian invasion and, I mean, inflation is still six and seven, depending on what metric you're looking at. And I think that, you know, when we, in the back half of the year, when we start going up against $80 oil, you're going to see teens CPI. And as a result, if the Fed doesn't keep raising rates, I, I think the long bond's going to detonate. And the Fed's really, really trapped. And I don't, I'm not sure if they know they're trapped, but they're really, really trapped. And, you know, the, it, even just keeping interest rates at 5%, uh, you're going to see at the fiscal situation, uh, you're going to see an increasing percentage of tax revenue just go to interest uh, expense because, I mean, our, our government's run by fools, both parties, and they, they had a long period of time where they could have termed out their debt for 30 years. And instead, they kept the debt really short-term debt. And the, the net result is that when they have to refinance this debt over the next couple of years, it's going to be at much higher rates. And it's going to squeeze out you know, pretty much everything else the government tries to do. And the government will respond by printing a ton of money because that's they know how to do. And so it's going to be very inflationary. Um, all these things are bad. Um, and, you know, I think it's going to be a very great moment in time to be a macro investor. Yeah, because you're looking for opportunity. Last thing. Well, well, I mean, it... I, I have a roadmap. That's, that's a, an important thing. I mean, I'm a history major. I'm not a finance guy. And I, I've studied inflationary crises over the last 200 years, they all kind of mirror each other. It's the Mark Twain line about them sort of rhyming. These, these things all sort of rhyme. And so if you have a roadmap and you study 20 of these, you kind of know how it's going to meander. And this one will probably mirror the last couple ones. Uh, you know, and I don't think we're Zimbabwe. I mean, I hope not. But I, I think you're going to see a decent chunk of inflation here. And you know, I hope it stays in the teens and doesn't get any worse. Fantastic stuff. Copy last thing. If, if for some reason there's resolution, I mean, it's hard to imagine right now sitting what we're looking at, but if there's some kind of resolution with Russia and Ukraine, um, any chance that Russia coming back online or their supplies getting out to more of the world help ease the pressure on the downside? I know we've got a question about that. Well, I mean, Russia until, uh, well, I mean, look, until uh, May when uh, the Russian cutbacks uh, take effect, I mean, all the oil that Russia wants to export is getting exported. It's going to India and China. And a lot of it's getting refined and it's getting sent back to Europe. Uh, all that oil is making it into the market. So if we're suddenly friendly with Russia and we say, Russia, come give us oil, Russia is just going to say, okay. I mean, it's just going to save them a bunch of ton miles because right now you have a tanker taking it all the way around Europe and India and back again. 
it, it's not going to change anything. All that oil is already here. Um, you know, I think longer term, we might see more uh, U.S. service companies go to Russia, in which case they can grow their production. But that's, you know, a five-year, you know, mm. process. In the short term, if, you know, this piece and everyone's friends tomorrow, nothing changes. Cubby, it's been amazing to get your point of view. I'm so glad we're able to make this happen because I, it's a narrative that's certainly not being discussed a lot. So I totally appreciate you coming on with us. Yeah, happy to. Anytime, anytime. Happy to chat. Great stuff. Harris Kupperman, thanks so much. We'll be back at 4 p.m. for the Daily Briefing. Hope you join us then. In the meantime, take care and good luck out there, everyone. Thanks for joining us today. Just a reminder, the Real Vision Daily Briefing is in partnership with the Gold Investment Letter, helping sophisticated investors successfully navigate capital markets and maximize profits in gold, silver, and mining stocks. GIL discovers the most undervalued companies and isolates special situations in the mining sector for their members, breaking down unique topics such as investor psychology, portfolio management, and macroeconomic trends with a goal of drastically improving investment returns. Sign up for this free e-letter for immediate action, goldinvestmentletter.com.